So hey everybody, welcome to episode 309 of the More Than Just Code podcast. My name is Tim Hitcher and I am in Toronto, Ontario. I'm joined once again by Jaime Lippes Jr. in Seattle, Washington. How's it going? We also have Mark Rubin on the line in San Jose, California. Hello. Hey, I think you got through that all the way without stumbling. I know, I, I did. There was, there was a few moments there. Yeah. There was a couple of slips, but yeah. Okay. All right, thanks for noticing. Um, so yeah, fact check real quick. Uh, last week I was talking about running a mail server and I couldn't remember the name. Like This thing was like consumed my life for 10 years. I'm surprised I couldn't remember the name of it. But it's an app call or, or a script system called Spam Assassin. It's what you use to basically educate. And um, back in the day, it was like it would have been an Xserve uh, back running mail. Um, yeah, and you use Spam Assassin to educate it with blacklists and, and different patterns to look for in, in junk email. And it would filter out the email and toss it into the cylindrical filing cabinet. Um, or it would mark it with spam if you want, if your customers want it delivered that way. And then I'm going to let Jaime do the next one because you, you grabbed this one from our Slack channel. So what do you got there, honey? Yeah, yeah. Besides hitting us up on hashtag AskMTJC on Twitter, you can also join our Slack channel. So uh, friend of the show channel uh, there. Believe Tim, there are notes on MTJC.FM for folks who are looking to join. Um, one that we did get from a friend of the show, Paul Wilkinson, is related to our talking about the you know various operating systems and what's uh, supported for the various devices. And I guess we, we might have gotten a little bit off because it says... Some follow-up fact check. The iPhone 6 stops at iOS 12. The 6S got iOS 13, so it has only been a year since Apple ended support for a phone. Which mm, okay. I guess maybe... Yeah, I, I think we were confused when we're saying that the 6 still worked on iOS 13 or something like that. Yeah, yeah, we're, yeah we're pretty six, close. Six I mean, it's it's yeah. one, one device off, one letter yeah. off. Yeah, I, know, I think the lowest device we use at the office in terms of 6s is, is the 6S, but we do use the 5, 5S and... Is it 5S? And 5C, I think, right? Or the two bottom ones that we support right now. The 5 Alrighty. C only goes up to iOS 10 for sure. Mm. Well, maybe it's a five. The five S. I know because five is we still have, or maybe it's the SEM I'm thinking of that we still have to support. Oh, the S- yeah, the SEM goes higher. Yeah, yeah, that goofy layout, right? That we have to support. Um, was it five something? Five twelve? I don't remember. Um, that's more fact check for you guys next week. It's up on the Slack channel. Um, all right. So, uh, yeah. So this is a quick one here, sort of follow up on the Corona story uh, and that kind of stuff. That uh, oh, actually, no, this is more political and politics which we tend not to go to, but uh, Apple is going to give employees paid time off to make sure that they go and vote in the U.S. election, however that ends up being. This is a story from Mark uh, Grumman on Bloomberg. And yeah, so the retail hours, retail workers and hourly workers across the country are going to be able to go and vote. So hopefully the rest of you take the hint and do the same thing. Election day is November 3rd this year? Is it always 3rd? That was Not always the 3rd. It's always the first, I guess, the first Tuesday of November. Mm-hmm. It follows similar kind of rules to like Apple announcements, doesn't it? Where it's kind of like a particular Tuesday in a month. Yeah. So it says here that it's four hours, which I'm sort of split on. On on the one hand, it's like, well, I mean, you know, some of these polling places can can take longer. So four hours doesn't seem like a whole lot. Um, you know, a full day would be nice. But on the other hand, it was better than what we had before. So I don't really want to discourage. Which is what, nothing? You know, time off. <laughs> yeah, we had nothing yeah. before. So I definitely do encourage folks to vote. In Canada, employers, or at least in Ontario, our, our employers are supposed to give employees three hours to make it to the polls. So our polls open early and they close like at like eight o'clock at night. So technically you can let them go at five kind of thing, right? But uh, yeah, we're supposed to 
to is a, a part of our legal requirements. You have to give people three hours to go and vote. It doesn't mean we pay them or, or anything like that. It just means that we have to give them the time to go vote. So hopefully, uh, like I said, people take the hint here that I'm trying to lay down. Um, all right. And uh, I mean, you got the next one here, exposure notification. Yeah, I don't recall if this particular page is something we had seen before, the exposure notification framework that Apple and uh, Google have put together for uh, contact tracing for COVID-19. But the thing that is new is the download and preview source code or the internals of how that exposure notification framework works. And folks uh, apparently have taken a look at this and said, oh, it's uh, it's Objective C++, which <laughs> <laughs> caused some folks to say, oh, see, like when Apple really needs to you know get it done, they go back to, to this. And I was kind of thinking, well, yeah, that could be, not saying it is um, or that it's not, but it could also be just by happenstance, what is the, you know, your bread and butter programming language, you know, particular employee or employees that we have chosen to do this. Um, so I, I, I wouldn't read too much into their use of Objective-C++ as, a, uh, I guess, a, a sort of a backdoor swipe at, uh, a backhanded swipe at, uh, at Swift is what I assume folks were looking at. Like, I just think it was probably like, you know, I was caught in one sort of similar situation. It was like, hey, we need you to create this SDK, you know, you, do you want to do it in Swift? I'm like, well, sure, hypothetically, yes. And, and this was years ago before I got more comfortable with Swift. And then I said, well, how long would we have to do it? I'm like six weeks. Oh, no, I think I'm going to go with Objective-C because that's that's my bread and butter. And I can I can ensure, you know, that we're going to get there to the finish line with that. And I could not at the time with Swift, even though nowadays I probably would lean towards Swift. It was hard at first to do stuff fast because with Swift when it first came out, because you'd, you'd do something and you just get a random error message and, you know, you'd have to spend the rest of your day just trying to figure out why this thing that you think is exactly right just gave you a random syntax error. Yeah, <laughs> that, was, yeah. that was Swift 1. <laughs> <laughs> and it got even worse when Swift 2 came out. And, and then, so all of the, all half the documentation at least was still in Swift 1 and then Swift 2 just behaved completely differently. Yeah, and the error you would get would be nowhere near the call site right. where the actual problem was, which is the other misleading thing. I'm looking at the source code right now and trying to see if I can tell what in here would require C++. Like, is there some library that they're using? So is that like, so I know when we did Coco's 2D back in the day, we'd sometimes have like C frameworks or C that we'd have to support C and we'd put like a, I think it was like a .m, you'd have to put plus in the name of it or something like that. Is that the same sort of idea? Like, how do, Well, the does, client the compiler can, can build both Objective-C and uh, C++ and collective, oh, any, collectively any they're called Objective-C++. So if you use the .mm extension, that's, right, that was, that's MM, a signal yeah. that yeah. there's C++ in there. But regular C uh, is, you know, Objective-C of C is yeah, that's a, native. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You can yeah, just yeah. use C out of the exactly. box. Like yeah, yeah. The yeah. Primitives, primitives are like in C. Yeah. So I didn't dig into this, Mark, but I just kind of assume since it has to deal with Bluetooth at some level, that maybe that's where they they wanted oh, to have yeah. that lower level access. Yeah. There's some cryptography stuff in there as well. That may have been why they went with the um with the C plus or the Objective C side because of because of you know having to deal with the was it unsafe pointers or something? Yeah. They maybe they just with? didn't want to deal with yeah. figuring out the random se- seemingly random syntax uh, for using the unsafe right. pointers every time you try to do it. It seems different. <laughs> you know, it's funny. If, Somebody's if that telling was... the screen about how easy it is. I know, I know. <laughs> if that was, like, even vaguely Get a consideration, because I went the, you know, hardware uh, Bluetooth, but I think you're quite right. Like, you absolutely don't want to get the crypto wrong if there's yeah. crypto stuff right, going in there. Right. So, you know, trying to figure out, like, hey, again, going back to what's your background, I was like, hey, Lopez, do you really grok and understand how Swift deals with 
unsafe stuff? No. Do you kind of at least get how the C++ pointers work? Yes. All right, there's your answer. Write it in that and then ship it until we come up with something better when we have more time. They're also doing direct SQLite calls, it looks like, so no core data. And they're, do- they're doing that in PRC, interestingly enough. This is the framework where you have to, like, it's like if you're building an app, it's like one per country kind of thing. Like, it's not something that you could, anybody could make an exposure notification app or? Uh, I, not, I guess anybody could, but you wouldn't be able to deploy it to the stores, distribute right, to the stores, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. Like, it has to go through um, your official organizations in your particular country. But yeah, I mean, you could, I mean, I don't know if there's licensing agreements that would run afoul of things, but I don't see why you couldn't write one yourself just to see how it works and, you know, do like a meetup or conference presentation or something about it. Interesting. Okay, cool. Um, another follow-up item here. Uh, we've talked about Apple was talking about moving some of their, their manufacturing to India, and uh, there's a couple of reasons why, but uh, apparently now there is a Foxconn plant in India, and so uh, some of the iPhone 11s, not all of them, but some, I believe some of the iPhone 11s are being manufactured in India now. I think it may also have to do not just with all this sort of you know uh, trust issues that people have with with China, but I think it also has to do with the the price of phones in that that market, right? Um, yeah, there's heavy um, import duties that are put on things that are not uh, hardware specifically that's not built in India. So this ends up being right, a pretty right. good way to you know that's part of the made in India thing. Yeah, yeah. So you you avoid a, a import duty or tariff that would you know, artificially raise the price of your your product. Uh, of course, it ends up being good for India because you end up starting building more industry. It, you know, even politics aside regarding, you know, like United States and China, you, to my mind, end up with, you know, an additional place where things can continue to get manufactured, right? Like the pandemic showed like, oh, you know, China builds darn near everything for the world. And when they have to shut down because of a pandemic, it means manufacturing capacity is dramatically hit. Whereas at least you could continue to sort of limp along, move along if you had other uh, facilities and sites. And I would point out two events that I mostly remember in my history. Uh, I remember when RAM got stupidly expensive because of like an earthquake in Taiwan. Um, Taiwan being like the only place that was making that particular style of RAM uh, at the time. And I remember, right? Yeah, yeah. I remember when hard drives got really expensive. And I don't remember if there was flooding in Thailand or Vietnam, but it was somewhere in that region where it's like, oh, good, we put all of our eggs in this one basket, so you cannot get a hard drive because the manufacturing plants are flooded. So I definitely like the idea of like iPhones continuing to be built uh, regardless of one particular area of the world being impacted. Yeah, that that RAM pricing thing was brutal. I remember it, it skyrocketed. The price was like it was almost like a hundred dollars a megabyte or something ridiculous like that. It was crazy. I heard it was like a fire, either a fire in the plant they made it, or they stole the wrong. Somebody stole the wrong design and knocked off. No, that was the, the capacitor issue. No, there was a yeah, there was an issue. I think it was a fire in some plant or something like that where they made, I guess, the main boards or something that uh, caused that RAM price to go through the roof. Interesting. Yeah. So this next article is sort of a it's a it's a shameless plug. It's uh, also so uh, follow up to a roundabout episode that Tammy and I had my sister-in-law Chloe Atkins on. Um, Chloe is uh, an advocate for um, disabled persons, accessibility, that kind of stuff. Um, she's spent part of her life in, in and out of wheelchairs, and so she knows what it's like to try and navigate a city and deal with uh, being disabled. So she's talking about in this article here called Disabled Lives 
Matter, um, that it's the 30th anniversary of the Americans with Disability Act. Now, I think we've talked about the ADA on the show before, right? You guys have brought it up, right? I think we've talked about it, yes. Yeah, so, yeah, so the article here that she talks about, uh, I mean, and she would know, right, from the point of view of being, you know, uh, in and out of the, in the business, basically, and, and being, you know, a wheelchair user herself, that uh, despite, you know, the, the fact that uh, the um, ADA is 30 years old and the Ontario Disabilities Act, or AODA, is, it started in 20, 2005, that there's still a lot of work to do. So um, she published an article, she says here, in American Canadian Legal Approaches to how disabled peoples are work in workplace uh, work. And so it's an interesting read. And also, if you're interested in a little bit more about Chloe and about her struggles, uh, Tammy and I interviewed her on an episode of Roundabout uh, back in 2017, 2018, somewhere in there. Um, yeah. So, yeah, interesting, interesting art- article here um, about, uh, yeah, the accessibility issues for disabled persons. Yeah, I think it's it's, it's definitely good to remind folks that, uh, and I, I know we've mentioned this sort of topic on the floor, but that, you know, accessibility isn't just for folks with some sort of inability, right? So um, I think we've talked about before that there can be a whole sort of different sets of reasons as to why somebody may not have a particular ability, right? So, uh, you know, issues with, you know, wheelchair ramp access is, is one thing. And I think a lot of people sort of naturally assume, oh, yeah, you know, if you uh, sort of permanently injured or you were born without some sort of usage of your legs, like, well, okay, sure. Um, you know, what if you broke your leg in a skiing accident, though, right? Or what if you've, you've otherwise got some sort of other things going on? Uh, accessibility isn't just for folks who are sort of on the margins or edges. There's sort of a, a whole spectrum of aspects that go into that. And I think furthermore, um, there's been a, a lot of sort of interesting work that talks about sort of the more positive aspects of bringing accessibility to the forefront and not uh, looking at it as some sort of uh, legal requirement, but also as a legal and ethical sort of requirement, a moral requirement, but also looking at it as something that can enable other good positive things, right? So I think one of the, the best canonical examples I've ever heard is on uh, curb cuts, right? So curb cuts, for those who don't know, if you're walking on your sidewalk, you'll notice that there's the little like ramp dip sort of thing that sort of leads gracefully onto the street. Uh, hypothetically, you know, yes, that it does lend itself to be used by folks who have mobility issues, like require the use of a wheelchair, but um, it also enables, you know, people who have uh, babies in strollers, right, who are just walking out uh, enjoying the day. And it also ends up making life easier for commerce because people are delivering products from FedEx, UPS, DHL, uh, using, you know, the dollies and etc. to move large, heavy packages and other sorts of freight. Curb cuts make that sort of thing better too. So I, I think we're better off not looking at accessibility as like, oh, this is just this thing we do to end up helping, helping people who have some sort of disability, but really looking at it as a way to enable everybody to be better off. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the whole dark mode thing also comes, you know, we're having on our phones right now, a lot of people use inverted colors on their screens because of visual impairments as well. And I, and I don't have a problem telling you that I wear glasses now and have for like the last 10 years or so. And it's really annoying to try and look at a screen um so i i use the larger font sizes on my uh my devices i have to laugh i'm laughing because i just uh, teams uh, microsoft teams has just supported uh started supporting large font sizes or so it seems on on ios and except that they're going a little overboard in typical heavy-handed microsoft kind of way the, the fonts are really big on uh on teams but uh yeah just uh yeah i mean because it makes it easier like to see things you know and and i mean i use the flashlight on the back of my phone all the time 
room too, like to, to, to illuminate things to make it easier to see stuff, right? So there's a lot of different reasons why people, people uh, I mean, anybody who would be considered able-bodied um, at some point will all be requiring some sort of access to accessibility. So it's obviously an important thing to put in your app and think about how your, uh, your users are using your app, right? Right. And then, uh, yeah, so I, I, this is, I think today is the day that uh, in the main part of the story, main part of the show here, um, that uh, a couple of stories here, they're kind of related. I think they might even be about the same sort of thing is that um, Apple and Google are under um, fire uh, and by the number of states um, on a probe uh, alleging that they're using decept- deceptive trade practices. And I think a lot of this um, focuses around partly on their 30% uh, cut that Apple Apple takes. I'm not sure what Google's uh, take is. Um, Apple presented a, an argument saying that they, a marketing study, that they, they are comparable in terms of what other services uh, charge for, for their bits. But um, this one Texas attorney is, is saying that Apple's, you know, violate Apple and Google kind of uh, form. I think I may be crossing the two articles together, but in my head, but the fact that they're... Um, Duopolies, I think is a term they use. The fact that the two of them together kind of make restrictions for all of us a little difficult, you know, in terms of being able to publish our apps. We're sort of because they're the only games in town, but. Um same time, you could argue that you'd have no way to publish your apps if it wasn't for them. Yeah, I mean, this is the thing. Yeah, like, like think about, we've talked about this on the show before, and, and, and I would argue that in my case, that I'm actually happy that Apple is like, you know, protecting users from my mistakes and stuff like that. You know, like, I mean, in terms of um, vetting that nobody can just, no, random person can't just create an app and put it on your phone or convince you to, to install it. You know, it has to go through a vetting process and, mm-hmm. and all that kind of stuff. And um, yeah, so the other article talks about... Uh, Epic, which is a, I guess, a game manufacturer, or the CEO of Epic, is calling on Apple and Google um, for their their um, pricing uh, style, right, or what do you call it, structure? Yeah, well, uh, I don't know if the Texas Attorney General one is specifically related to what the U.S. Congress is currently doing with its hearings, congressional hearings that pulled in Tim Cook from Apple, Sundar Pichai from Google, Mark Zuckerberg from Facebook, and Jeff Bezos from Amazon. Uh, they're definitely all getting raked over the coals at the moment. Uh, regarding their various uh, companies' practices. Um, Epic is the uh, the game maker behind Fortnite. And they, I can imagine, I didn't actually see what they had said particularly about Apple, but they must be extra angry at Apple because they're, we're very, very angry at Google. And they said, yeah, you know, this, this Google uh, Play Store, we really don't want to um, give you the cut of the money that we're making from this wildly popular game. So because it is an option on Android, they made their own uh, app store equivalents and uh, basically trying to build like their own Steam, if anybody has used that on uh, for video games. And, uh, you know, they eventually had to bring their, their very popular game over to Google Play as well, uh, because uh, as they, they claim there that, um, you know, you got all sorts of very scary warnings about trying to install Fortnite from something other than the official Google Play store. Uh, and that's where they actually had options, right? Where they grudgingly sort of came back to to deal with that and you you know flat out do not have that option for ios and ipad os right like you know, mac os is one thing you, you can distribute software outside of the store but you definitely do not have that option on ios so i could, I could see where where epic would be probably one of the more interesting uh testimonies coming before before congress 
So what, what do you, let, let's have a let's throw out a straw man out there. So do you think people? Well, people okay. People are going to complain no matter what, right? But um, but do you think people would complain less if Apple and others had a variable structure depending on what services you used? Like say, let's just say you know there's a baseline instead of the baseline being thirty percent across the board. Say the baseline is fifteen percent across the board. You want to use you want to use just pulling things out of nowhere. If you want to use push notifications, it's an extra five percent. If you want to use, um, uh, you know, you, if you want to use um, in-app purchase, it's another five percent or something like that. If you want to use uh, Cloud Kit, another five percent or or whatever the numbers are. You know, I, don't, I know they don't have up to yeah. thirty, but yeah. but you know, so it's sort of an it is a base number and an a la carte number. Do you think people would like that better or just complain as much? I wonder. I, to be honest with you, I think people would complain as much. I yeah. think that the, I mean, especially like you know, because because you'd want to basically make. I mean. It could, you could get to the point where it'd be ridiculous where if you have everything that Apple offers and you have to pay, you know, 75% of your, your income to yeah. them well, because of all these fabulous but, services. I mean, just, you know, but, but let's say, argument, let's say right? it maxed out at 30%, you know, it'd never be more than 30%, yeah. but it might be less than 30% if you don't use certain things. Would, would people stop using some of those features in their apps? They might. Some people would. They might, yeah. Yeah. So that would be a disincentive for Apple to do it because Apple, you know, re- regardless of the money, they want everyone to use the latest and greatest. Well, Apple's already done a done a staggered structure on the the subscription side, right? Because I mean, they have now, if I'm not mistaken, and don't quote me on the numbers, but I think it's like 15% after year two, sort of thing, right? Like, so if you want to have like an annual subscription kind of model, um, they're they're saying. I, I remember it was uh, Phil Schiller even was announcing this. I think it was last year's WWDC that, or maybe two years ago, that that you could have an uh, ongoing subscription, you know, like a recurring income kind of model. And they would only take, you know, the the amount for the first year, but after the second year, they would they would cut it back to fifteen percent or something like that, right? Um, that that's showing that there's some understanding that, like, you, you know, they're not helping you with the marketing and all that kind of stuff at, along at the beginning, right? So I don't know, it's hard to say. I, I think it, I think the thirty percent was just a number that Steve Jobs pulled out of the air, right? Or whoever was who that came up with the idea, right? And um, you know, I, and if you look at this marketing report that Apple did spit out in part of their argument. Um, they're like, you know, like they were comparing themselves to like Uber and Lyft and, and other companies like that, where they take a cut of the revenue, right? Like I think, I think Uber and Lyft are almost 20% that they take, uh, of each, each, uh, driver's, you know, income, right? That's an interesting one. So does, does Uber pay Apple every time there's a transaction through your iPhone, Uber? Uh, I know. I don't know. I don't know. So, so here, like Amazon, here's a, here's an example off this table. So Amazon is roughly anywhere from eight to 17%. eBay is 10 to 12%. Um, um, Poshmark, I don't know what they are. They're they're twenty percent. Um, booking Booking.com is fifteen percent on average, right? Airbnb is anywhere from like looks like seventeen to twenty percent. Um, StubHub and Ticketmaster don't get me started on those two. They're they're thirty seven and thirty one percent. Uber is twenty five percent and Lyft is twenty percent. Uber Eats is fifteen to thirty percent. Um, Grubhub is twenty three twenty three to thirty three percent. And and um, Upwork and and TaskRabbit they also take a, a chunk around as well. 
well, right? So it adds up, right? So wait, so these are you're talking about if 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 you as a customer buy something from Uber Eats, you're paying fifteen percent to Uber Eats beyond what you're paying for the food, right? Is that is that what you're talking about? Yeah. Well, these, no, I mean, you, you, so the food you, when you buy when you order something from Uber Eats, right? You're you're getting a ten dollar pizza. You're paying thirteen dollars for it, right? Or fourteen dollars for it, right? And part of that part of that extra four bucks goes back to Uber. Yeah. Like so, twenty five percent of that, right? So they get a buck for every pizza, pretty much. If you use that math that I just threw out, um, you know, and and so yeah, so these are basically commissions that they take for care for supporting you in your business on their network, right? Essentially, that's what it is. Like you you can't get an or you can't drive somebody around an Uber without having Uber's phone and and you know paying them back, right? Paying them something. Um, but all these other services like all the you know uh, Xbox and Steam and even Epic Games charges something, right? Um, Microsoft is thirty percent. Apple is thirty percent. Amazon is thirty percent. Google Play is 30%, right? So 15% after the first 12 months, it says here for Google Play. So yeah, it's 15% for subscriptions after the first year uh, for for Apple. Yeah, same. So Apple and Google are using the same model. Um, So if you, you know, you sell the app or you sell a subscription or whatever, what after the first year, you only pay Apple half of that um, commission, right? That you would have paid before. So it's comparable, right? Like there has to be something that the company that's building the servers and the infrastructure for you to be able to do your business has to make something from it. I mean, it's arguable. Is it arguable that it's 30% for Apple? What do you think? Like, I know what it's like to run a server and what it costs and stuff like that. It's not cheap. Yeah, I've, I've never thought 30% was unreasonable. And and I think where you hear most people complain, I think the average just app developer isn't complaining so much about 30%. No. It, it, it's the, it's it's the, the big people, guys. Well, it's it's the ones who are who are selling a service through the app or, or mm-hmm. like, and, and, and they're complaining about the fact that you have to, they have to pay for, essentially for the in-app purchase of their of their service so it's not actually the cost of the app that you're paying mm-hmm. for right i mean yeah people, yeah i mean people if you, do if complain you, about you know if it's a you, know, you sell your app for two dollars apple's taking 60 cents they people do claim about that they claim about everything yeah. but it's really the ones like like <laughs> epic games or whatever where if you buy the game i don't know exactly how their model works but if you you know you you, you download the game then you buy it uh, the 30 dollar game through the app right the full yeah. full game then yeah 30 percent of that is going to apple that those are the people who are really complaining yeah well proper games like microsoft um, what do they call their platform? Um, I'm going to say 360 for argument's sake. Xbox and and PlayStation, for instance. Xbox, thank you. Yeah, 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 Xbox. So Xbox and PlayStation, for instance, if you want to buy a game on those those platforms, you're spending 75 to to $100 easily for a new title, right? Um, so that's like, a, that's like a one-time thing. And then they have all this downloadable content, and now they're, th- they're throwing in subscription models because they, they see the writing on the wall. That's where the money's being made. But, I mean, so if I'm, like you said, if I'm selling an, an app for $2 and I'm, and I'm paying Apple 60 cents, I guess right. Um, that's you know it's kind of you know it's nothing to me really. But but if I'm Epic and I'm selling a million dollars worth of goods and I have to write a check to Apple or Apple takes holds back three hundred thousand dollars, right? Then I'm a little that that could be that's a, a noticeable difference, right? Um, you know what I mean? Like, well, like I'm sure Epic really is selling. More. They're, they're making they're still making seven hundred thousand dollars. You know that's that's I think that's not that's no, not. I mean, so. but that's what I'm saying. That's what I think. That's what they're complaining. If I was making seven hundred thousand dollars, I'd be like, yeah, I'm making seven hundred thousand dollars, right? And you know, I'd have I would hopefully have an infrastructure to support that type of that size of business, right? But you know, yeah, it's hard. It's hard to argue. You know, I mean, what do they charge? I mean, they have to charge something, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. what do you think? I mean, you've been awfully quiet. I've been sort of noodling on some of this. So coming back to Mark's question of like, would would people complain? I I think there is precedence for this sort of unbundling. So like, you you pay nothing, and then as you start adding additional options, it starts getting more uh, expensive. And I think the thing I would point to that people 
would you know, have complained about is think about airfare, right? Back when we, we could travel, uh, you know, it used to be, oh, like airfare is too expensive. All right. When ended up happening? Cool. Here is the base price. If you literally just want to walk onto an airplane with nothing with you and, and, you know, be on the other side. Cool. But if you wanted, you know, priority boarding, if you wanted, you know, to choose your seat, if you wanted to have in some you, cases, you want that uh, sandwich Oh, 25 bucks. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, there was, there was the, you know, uh, uh, checked baggage was definitely one of the first things to go as, as being part of the included price. Uh, in some cases you have overhead bin access is, is not part of the price. Really? And, wow. And that, that yep. effectively makes it cheaper than it was before, but, uh, it can be more profitable in many respects for, for the airlines as they end up with, with getting to, to ding you on stuff. But psychologically people view it as like, man, I'm getting nickeled and dimed. This sucks. Right. So I, I think that would end I up happening. He used to get a meal on every flight, not just a bag of peanuts. It wasn't that long ago. I guess it was a long time ago, but it doesn't seem like it was that long ago. No, that's true. You used to get, used to get it. Yeah. And, and I remember, I remember um, one of the airlines here that flies across Canada started charging for access to the entertainment system. You had to like put your visa card into the into the headrest to be able to watch a movie right so and then people would just not watch movies right i mean that's that's the reality it's like like it's kind of like you're right back in the day they used to have all these services um you know coat check and they would do you know your bags and and you know you didn't have to pay for i remember you didn't have to pay for an extra bag like if you had like you know you were you were given a limit but you could have two couple of bags and now it's like you pay for every single bag right yeah unless you want to carry it on then you know you get into this like now it's, it's comical because i can't tell you the number of flights I've been on in the last three or four years where um, you know I have a carry-on and I know I, invariably that there's going to be too many carry-on bags and you're going to have to gate check them right I gate check my bag all the time because you know that's that's just the nature of the thing I don't want to argue with you know guys back in the middle of the plane about where to put stuff because people are too cheap to pay for a check bag you know what I mean like like often if I'm if I'm taking oversized stuff I'll I'll pay the 50 bucks and get my bag checked and then not have to worry about you know just Walk, like you said, walk onto the plane with my magazine and my iPad, right? Sort of thing, right? Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I find, I think that people complain, people in general. I mean, so are we talking about people in general? Are we talking about these big CEO dudes who are going to, you know, have the have the clout to get, you know, like you you and I complain, you know, the, the, the I don't know, who's Congress or whoever, who's who's doing this, C, this uh, antitrust thing? Um, who yeah, it's congressional kind of hearings. Hearing. Congressional. So they're, they're not going to give a crap if I'm complaining about the paying Apple 60 cents on, on every app I sell right um whereas you know somebody like epic the dude has clout or you know he can go to his congressman and lobby and i'll bring you x number of votes if you'll take this to congress right kind of thing right i don't know hard to say why people complain about things i but. i think that there's a lot to, to unpack here because a lot of these things are related and they get sort of swirled together so i think there is very much a strong value proposition for the app store yeah. and its curation as much as we complain about it sometimes on this very show about you know nutty things that end up happening with app review i think in general i I believe it's it's a good thing because it keeps some of the worst sort of possible things uh from really how many stories have we talked about people doing nefarious things on the app store in the last four or five years right we've we've had many cases where don't let download this app or like just recently like ios 14 calls out a bunch of people for copying your your clipboard right you know yeah and and so the, the fact that 
that those are noteworthy and, and are, you know, man bites dog instead of sort of mundane dog bites man, you know, that <laughs> I, I think is, is a testament to the, like, the value there. Now, the, the question is, is that such a good thing that it has to be the only way in which software is delivered? And that's kind of a different mm. question, right? Because it's, I think, really sort of difficult to, you know, sort of explain, like, okay, so why is, you know, iOS, you only have the app store, but on macOS, you have multiple different routes. You have many alternatives to the app store. Why why not lock that one down? Because that would hypothetically be good for the users, right? Um, if you take the same approach. And I, and I don't think that that's true. I'm not arguing for them to, to lock down macOS. I'm not even necessarily arguing to to open up iOS because I do think that those those different users and the, the level of savviness that goes into what those users are doing is, is quite different, right? I think you know, something like an iPhone, like that's you know, pricing notwithstanding, that's largely a device for everybody, right? You don't have to be very savvy about what's going on and how dangerous stuff is on the internet for that to, to be something that's useful to you. And I think those guardrails really, really help the vast majority of people. That's a little bit less uh, of, a, of a concern when you're talking about macOS, where if you really truly do you know, want a laptop and, and you're willing to take on some of the, uh, the trade-offs there with, you know, I have less safety, but I have more capability then you've, you've made a different choice there. So I think separating out that from, okay, assume that there there is a reason why there should only be the App Store on iOS. Okay, great. Now, given that you have this, not a true monopoly, in my opinion, not a lawyer, um, not a true monopoly in, in the normal sense of the term, I, I think even by, uh, certainly not by US standards, but I don't believe it even falls under EU, European standards either. But certainly it's very clear that there is a, cornering of of a market that that apple has here right and they can do things that we talked about like you know these battles they'll end up having every once in a while where uh, it seems like they're sort of bullying particular apps and and sometimes those come up because people are you know influential enough that they can actually cause enough of a you know, of a buzz to get even Apple to sort of budge, but it's certainly not going to budge for a random developer on the street. Right. Um, and, and I think that's, that's something that, that ends up coloring all of the ways that people are looking at this. And I think it also means that even though, you know, historically, I think it is quite accurate that like 30% for, you know, retail access is insanely good, ridiculously good, right? Like you wouldn't normally get anywhere near only 30% of your, your product's price being removed by the retailer, right? Try try putting something on retail at uh, at like Walmart uh, or your local grocery store. It ain't going to be thirty percent. They're taking they're taking a lot more than that. But I also don't think that that means that it's necessarily uh, a good price and it's a good deal because I think the value proposition for what the App Store is bringing to developers has changed as Apple has changed from sort of the uh, you know the underdog up and comer to by far one of the most powerful companies in the world. So I, I don't I don't know where things need to go because any any resolutions you would have on this from a legislative standpoint, I guarantee are gonna be incredibly dumb. <laughs> I'm not gonna lie. I don't have a lot of faith that, that good things will happen. So I'm I'm really, you know, crossing my fingers here and hoping that Apple itself will do some remedies and say, you know what? Cool. Across the board, 15% from day one, right? That's that's what you get. Yeah. Um and, and maybe they'll do more and, and make it so that things are a little bit 
better. I think as I, I think part of the things that, you know, I'm not talking about like the epics of the world, right? The, the big mega companies, like they're just looking to, uh, like they're going to be safe, right? They're just looking towards, um, you know, maximum maximize, profitability. Yeah. Maximizing profitability, right. You know, get the CEO a nice bonus at the end of the year sort of thing. And I think for yep. the very, you know, very, very tiny indie developers, it, it's not that big a deal. Like, all right, I got to wait 30% more days before I can buy a pizza with my, my app earnings. Right. I think it's that, that weird middle ground of companies that are like kind of big enough to actually have a fair number of employees, but not so big that they can't get completely obliterated by like one app store reviewer that I think is, is problematic. See, my, my, my main problem with this type of story is this whole, um, you know, guilty until proven innocent sort of approach to, to journalism in general. Right. And, and how these sort of things get, I mean, the headline here says, you know, this Texas AG alleging deceptive trade practices or, you know, um, and, and just even the, the term antitrust hearing. It's like, do you think Steve Jobs back in 2007 when he conceived this this app store model or whoever it was, um, sat back and said, you know, we can make a lot of money in the last ten, next 10 years, you know, especially if this, this idea takes off, right? I, I don't think there was any sort of nefarious sort of, you know, boardroom skullduggery going on when they came up with this pricing. I don't think that Apple, I mean, we've we've lived through the app store we know it was it was a it was a, a world of hurt for a long time because it, it was it was a hot mess for a long time is the term i'm looking for right you know there was there was times when you what two weeks to get a review through was like normal and you know um you know apps would get rejected for the dumbest reasons you know you know back in the t- i mean they still do to be honest with you but you know and you know I, i've watched there's it, it actually a book um called becoming steve jobs which i read a few years ago um forget the author's name but I, I read between the lines when I read the book like that, and I think to myself, you know, Apple got to where they were through pure luck and happenstance. Because, yeah, I mean, I'm, don't get me wrong, I am a, I'm an Apple fanboy, and I do have, you know, a Macintosh tattooed on my butt, you know. But the and I have a dog named Macintosh, in fact. But the um, I don't, I don't really, I don't give you know the people at Apple that much credit to be that nefarious and that you know that sort of and they're they're not doing they're not like the Wolf of Wall Street kind of like making it up as they go along kind of thing and debauchery and that kind of stuff. But, you know, so I have a problem when, when these big, you know, mega people come after companies like Apple and Google and, you know, just go after them for like antitrust, like as if they planned this whole thing, right? Or, you know, they're, they're, it's, it's not like the, they're not like the mob, right? They're just a bunch of Apple developers who, you know, came up with a structure and a hardware and software solution that we all love and adore, right? And now we can all make a living off. I mean, I've spent the last 10 years working in iOS or however long it's been. Yeah, 10 years. And, um, thanks, Apple. Here's 30%, you know? Hello. What do you think? Are you still there? Yeah. Well, <laughs> Is that me? Yeah. I just had like a long, lengthy diatribe. On this. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I, I'm not quite as uh, as forgiving as as you are, Tim. Um, yeah. I don't know. I'm not. I'm not forgiving. I'm just telling. I'm. I'm not saying Apple's like the the brilliant. I'm not. You know, Steve Jobs wasn't like the walk on water kind of guy that everybody plays him out to be. I think he was just a guy who had a, who was good at marketing and and you know was in the right place at the right time. Oh, sure, right? Sure. Met but, the right guys. But, yeah. 
you're right. Yeah, and and it's true that I think Apple never expected to to be in the situation they're in now. But but that doesn't. That's kind of not really the the point. Um, you know, it, you don't have to have nefarious intent to have to to be a monopoly. And you know, the, the monopoly laws are there for a reason, and they've they've been used for good reason in the past. You know, for good things in the past. Uh, now, yeah, if if it, it, it does feel a little bit political right now with the what the Texas guy is doing, uh, uh, and and when you misuse those laws, that's a that's a problem. And you know, I, I certainly am not in favor of that by any means. But but I but I also don't think that um, that a big company should just you know get off scot free uh, just because they might have had good intentions at the beginning. Uh, I, I do I do think though that right now you know it's certainly it's certainly worth Apple's while to justify what they're taking in some way. Uh, and I and I think it probably is justified. You know, I, I think it would not be a difficult case. And and they might not want to do it just on principle. I, I don't know. They might not want to give all these uh, all of these uh, you know these people making a lot of noise. They might not want to give them any kind of any ammunition. Any kind of yeah, <laughs> yeah any, any kind of uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for um, uh, credibility, right? It, just in their claims, yeah. just by responding to it. Uh, but but it might be worth their while to sort of lay out, you know, for for your thirty percent, what are you actually getting? And and I think it, it's a lot, you know. You're, you're getting a you're getting an advanced set of tools. Uh, you're getting the distribution system. You're getting the vetting system. You're getting the like the, the services. You you know you're getting the the APNS for free. You're getting the cloud kit for free. You're getting the uh, the you're getting the service of the of the in-app purchase store for free. Although yes, you are paying percentage for that, of course. But the service part of it is is well, okay, maybe that's maybe that's the one that's not a good one because you are it's 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 you could argue that yeah, thirty percent you're paying for that service, so that's fine. Uh, and maybe they do you know maybe they do revisit some of the pricing. Maybe some maybe the in-app purchase they they lower the price a little bit or something like that, or or they're a little bit more open to uh, you know certain types of transactions to not get charged a full amount. But but I can see why they don't do it because once they start that, that's it's hard to stop. Mm-hmm. Right? It's a slippery slope. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, there's also the economies of scale kind of idea too, right? Like, and not uh, maybe that's the wrong terminology, but you know, for me and my 50 users, you know, they don't have to do a whole lot to to support us. You don't have to. You don't have to have like you know st- people standing by to deliver apps to my users, right? Like kind of thing, right? They don't. You know, back in the day, I would have had to put, make a floppy disk and put it in the mail and mail it out to you, kind of thing, right? Um, so for a small indie, that's one thing. But you know, if you're supporting someone who has millions of users and millions of signups, and you know that that's a lot of gigabytes you have to send out there's a lot of you know um the the experience of delivering an app to that many users has to be as good as it is for my 50 users right i mean so that infrastructure has to cost something to apple i mean they've got data centers in the middle of the united states running you know completely off of off of green energy and you know they've, they've they, they you can't build a big data center like that and and hire the people at the rate that they have to hire them at to put you know to put them into those nice air conditioned you know labs and whatever uh to do the work that they need to do right and and you know have proper hr and all that kind of stuff like that kind of business costs a lot of money to run and you know they're they're, they're making a few bucks off a of phone they're making a few bucks off a of mac you know probably more bucks than than obviously the 30 well, percent yeah I, mean, I, th- I think the argument to that, that that people would make is is just look at the amount of profit that apple makes well that's yeah 
they're, it's, they're making a ridiculous amount of profit. They're, it's not a break-even business, right? So they could, they could, uh, they could cut that 30% down to zero and it probably wouldn't even make a, make a dent. Make a dent. Yeah. But, that's true. But I'm not saying they should cut it down to zero because it's, I mean, it's, you're paying for service like anything else. You're paying for the service of being able to, to have your app distributed. Right. Right. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's not a monopoly when you can choose to, you can choose to distribute your app for, you know, whatever phone you want. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, go out and make a, make a better phone with your app front and center and then, you know, and then charge whatever you want. Yeah. It's kind of interesting seeing at these congressional hearings how, you don't normally see these tech CEOs like slamming their own company, right? Like, oh, you know, we we don't have the number one uh, platform in number of users sort of thing, which if I was Tim Cook, I would certainly throw that one out there. Like, by the way, did you you realize you only have 15% of the market? Um, And, you know, Mark, you said something interesting that made me think of of a, it might not be a great analogy, but it, it sort of fit in my mind that you're right in that we do do actually end up getting a lot for that 30%. Yeah. But I wonder if it's kind of akin to uh, if anybody's ever gone to to Disneyland or, or Disney World, similar theme parks. Um, Disney offers some pretty nice, like, all-in-one packages that include, you know, food and early access to the parks and I think even late access to the parks and uh, faster passes on uh, rides and so on and so forth. And, and, and generally, I think, uh, accommodations at the park. Um, and, and those are great. They're also a lot more expensive than, hey, what if I just get me and the family in the station wagon and we drive and stay at a Motel 6 across the street? And I think that's sort of what ends up sticking in people's mind. And I think the all-in-one pricing, even though you do get a lot, it might be more than than some folks might need or want. And yeah. I think it extra sticks in people's sort of you know minds as like, it's problematic that it's the only option, that I don't have yeah. an option to go the El Cheapo route, even if there is a better route. Yeah. And that's exactly the train of thought I was going down when I was talking about the, the a la carte type pricing earlier or thinking about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, yeah. Would it make sense for Apple to have a cheaper route or a no frills app route uh, where you don't get push notifications and you don't get uh, access to CloudKit and you don't get access to the to the online store and you don't get, uh, you know, whatever else you get. You don't get maps. You don't get, you know, you don't get, uh, I don't know, whatever, right? Whatever, whatever, you know, whatever, whatever is a bare bones minimum app for like 5% or 10% or something like that. I don't know. I think, I think probably it would be the all, the all in one method I think is probably better overall for the ecosystem because you'd get into a situation where if you had only a few, say you only have a few people using Bluetooth, let's say, right, in their apps, uh, then just supply and demand says, okay, Apple has to raise the cost for Bluetooth. So the, so the few people using it now are paying a lot more for bluetooth and and uh well you might argue that oh so, you know so what they're the only ones using it but but um it sort of feels like if you if you have the all you can eat type model it overall in the long run it pays off because there might be something that you want to use in the future and then all of a sudden you have to you'd have to pay this exorbitant amount because not many people are using it and right. again, or, or the, they drop bluetooth from the next phone because nobody's using it right, right. 
Exactly. Yeah. Yep. Nobody was using the headphone jack, clearly, right? Or the floppy disk. Well, that's different. That's different. Well, no, I mean, they were... <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. They were just, right, you know? Yeah, that's true. Who, we who didn't uses need a floppy were, disk anymore? I know, I know. Yep. Just me. All right. I mean, what's the next story here? This is a little bit of Swift UI that John Sandell has brought to at least my attention. I don't know if we talked about this before or if it was mentioned anywhere, but there's some nifty stuff where you can have um, a redaction reasons sort of thing that, that you can look into for your, your views. And he uses it, and it's actually kind of cool that um, this isn't going to play too well in his audio audio medium, but we'll have the link in the show notes for those of you driving at home. Uh, you can hover over the little preview next to the code samples that he's given, and it'll show you exactly what's going on here. So he is building a uh, very simple uh, UI, right, that has, what does it have? It has a place for an image, a title, and let's say like a subtitle or details, what do you call it? Description, an author name, and etc. It's an article view. And you can say, all right, Swift UI, um, this particular view is redacted for reasons. And I don't know what reasons are available beyond just the uh, the dot placeholder, but it's like, all right, cool. So Swift UI says every bit of text that's in here, I will automatically transform that into grayed out uh, rectangles. So it kind of looks, you know, like a like a placeholder. Uh, and then he's like a loading screen or something like that. Yeah, yeah. The skeleton screens that I, I think he mentions in the article. Yeah. And you you've got this environment variable that you can read into to see what those reasons are. Uh, he doesn't really actually show how that's used. I assume by in you know inference here that you might be able to say, oh, this is placeholder. Uh, maybe this is sensitive information. Like you know, it's redacted because you know this is a person's uh, tax identifier or some other um, you know thing that you wouldn't want to get out there. Um, but he does add a nice little extension on view uh, that allows you to um, say, cool, like I'm going to add this, apply this modifier, which the modifier is basically just a uh, closure. Because the one thing I didn't mention is that uh, images don't have any sort of default handling, right? They don't have the magic that, that rectangles do. But with what he shows here, it's not that hard to add in, what does he call it? When redacted, that will apply some modifier. In this case, he says, cool, um, article view or the image that we're going to display when it's redacted, uh, just go ahead and hide the image so we don't show it at all. And, and maybe you would do something in your use case. And that seems to make well, it like look... here he's showing a, a gray circle instead of a circular cropped image, right? Yeah, I think the gray circle was part of the, the background and then oh, the, the little regional, like regional uh, okay. like page right, right. icon was, was the image that he was using. Okay. Again, I, 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 I didn't get it at first. I was like, what did you do? And I had to really just hover over <laughs> the little preview and say, oh, okay, I see what he's doing here. Um, and then he also shows how you can you can unredact, which I think is pretty neat. So as I, as I sort of put this all together, it's like, all right, so uh, if I had reasons that I might want to redact things on my screen, there could be like, all right, well, let's, you know, we're still loading data. So make that placeholder. I'm, I'm going to assume there are other things that either exist or that you can add in there. I was like, hey, this particular thing doesn't even matter if we're in a placeholder scenario. You actually just need to full on redact this because this um, mm. this is sensitive data of some sort that we don't want to display, uh, you know, unless they, you know, do the magic gesture or uh, use face ID or you know other things that you might imagine that you would use as gatekeepers for that. I thought that was that was pretty neat that you, you 
you know, it gives you a lot out of the, the box when it comes to the dealing with text. It looks like dealing with other things like images is quite frankly, not that hard and, and kind of a sensible way. I think that the John's dealt with this. I thought it was kind of cool. I'm like, man, I remember loading in third party stuff, <laughs> third party stuff uh, way back in like 2013 to add this sort of skeleton view or magic. I was looking at the docs, the docs on this. I, granted, this is from beta three, and so there's still time to go, but I really hope those tech writers are, are working real hard because the, the docs were very, very limited. And I, I could not very easily answer the question of what other reasons are there besides placeholder? I made up other ones, assuming that those would be sensible ones, but I, I really couldn't tell from the docs. So I appreciate a blog posts like this. It could be if you used like, you know, if you're, if you're making a call and it's an asynchronous call and it's going to take a bit of time to get back to you, you know, you could you could present this view and then update it when you know because we're talking about Swift UI you update the view all the time when the state changes but you know you could have the the redacted view as, as a placeholder like literally until you tell your, your data comes in the other the other option would be like something like one password where you know you show the the fields of everything except the stuff that's projected like you know your your three digit code for the back your CVC code for your visa card or your or the password you need to log in and you know so that could be you know obviously unless you click on it and say reveal in which case it changes and shows you what it is right sort of thing so it's a way of i think it's an interesting way of, of doing that it's cool to see that it's built into swift or using this redacting view is this something that built in or he wrote this so uh, the redacted in reason with the i don't know the type unfortunately um because <laughs> swift kind of doesn't want you to see the type right in the way that we write it so I, I haven't pulled this into like a playground or anything to see what this actually is but there is some sort of like options set i would guess for these reasons um and i don't know which ones are available beyond just dot placeholder because you're right things could be like you know requires authentication uh, like in the case of one password or uh, some things might you know if you could create your own which would be kind of cool you might have a requires subscription sort of thing right you could imagine that uh your app you know was displaying uh articles of some sort right that like hey you get this one free but then wow 10 reasons x ran into this problem. I was like, what? Who's, who's X? I was like, well, the reason you can't see this is because we have redacted it due to subscription required. That might be a nifty thing to do, right? So you don't have to sort of fake as much. You'd be like, well, the data is really there, but uh, you need to pony up with that sweet, sweet in-app purchase and the related 30% before you can see who we were talking about in this clickbaity article title that I've hypothesized. Well, the way I read this, it looks like this redacted is one of the protocols that's built into Swift UI. I'm trying to find the iOS 14 stocks for swift ui it's hard to find just with a google search yeah i ended up looking for production reasons uh and got a whole bunch of stuff and said all right this looks like an option set to me but i was struggling at the time and maybe they fixed it now they're figuring out like all right so so what are the reasons i can do besides placeholder can i create my own can i add more to the option set like ideally the the redaction reasons would be built such a way that i could just have new reasons conforming to a protocol you know redactable redaction redaction reason representable or something just making up what it might be called you know if it was all fully straightforward and and 100 made sense out of the box there wouldn't be reason for podcasts would there so that's true. This is how the ecosystem thrives. <laughs> Where's our 30%? <laughs> 
<laughs> I'm still here's, looking okay, for that. Redacted. Uh, okay, so redacted. So there, there's a redacted method on on view that takes an argument called reason that takes and reason is of type redaction reasons. <laughs> All right. So let's, we drill into redaction reasons, and interestingly enough, it's a struct. Right. So you struct your name, and it conforms to option set, and then you have a bunch of static properties that are all your different options. It is kind of a weird, weird uh, data structure options. It's a pretty bizarre data structure. Yeah, so uh, the next part of the show I just want to talk about, uh, I think um, some people are expecting a sort of a review of my experience with the iPad Pro, the new 2020 iPad Pro that I've received last week. Um, I think it came on Friday? Yeah, Friday. I've had the Magic Keyboard for a while, and uh, now I've got the iPad here, and it's 11-inch. I've gone down from from 12.9 down to 11-inch iPad. I do notice a difference in size. However, the, I like the design of the new iPads. It's that sort of, um, what was it, iPhone 4 that had the square edges uh, on it. And um, so the, the I got to say that I was concerned about the angle options on the, the actual um, Magic Keyboard itself, um, but they do seem to be comfortable. Like if you're sitting on the couch, you know, with, with the iPad on your lap and you're, you know, doing a little bit of typing or whatever, um, I tend to leave it connected to the, to the, to the uh, keyboard um, all the time. Um, it is annoying that when you want to use a regular key, unless, unless listeners of the show know how to do this, I, I haven't been able to figure it out. But sometimes when I'm when I'm uh, have the keyboard plugged in and I want to do some like typing, I want the virtual keyboard to come up. There doesn't seem to be any way to uh, to have that come up um, using the keyboard. I, I gotta say too, I've gone from the Logitech keyboard, um, the Logitech Create keyboard, which had function keys across the top, and it had the but the function keys were like the Apple style, where you could adjust brightness and sound, and there was a play and pause button and a few other things like like that um, that are not. There is no extra row on this keyboard, so it's kind of uh, annoying. Um, and so it's kind of it, it is a bit annoying like that. I have to some, sometimes take it off of the, the keyboard to do some of the regular iPad-y kind of stuff that you would normally do. Um, I haven't really used the pencil too much, but yeah, it's, I like the fact that the pencil just sticks on the top of the iPad. That's kind of sort of where it lives all the time. It's got a least strong magnet that holds it on, and that's how it charges. So from that point oh, of view, it's it really nice. It um, doesn't go on the side, or are you talking about in when you're in landscape? Uh, it, the the iPad's always in landscape. Yeah, okay. yeah. Okay. I should, yeah. Should, yeah, yeah. It, does, it does stick on the side if you're if you're if you're holding it like freehand kind of thing, yep. right? Yep. Uh, I did find a video with a whole bunch of tips on you know gestures and things like that 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 uh, on using the iPad Pro, but they were talking about gestures with just the you know holding the the iPad freehand kind of thing, right? Um, there's a few other things I was, was going to say about the iPad that, uh, um, but I'm really enjoying it. I mean, like you know, compared to the I have I haven't updated it to iOS 14. I wanted to play with it for at least a week on you know iOS 13 because I'm familiar with that to see what what's good about it. And but yeah, I'm loving it. Like it's like um, the trackpad is great to have a trackpad on on the on the Mac or on the iPad is is awesome as well. Uh, I forgot when I when I you know I wiped my old my my old iPad and I, and I moved over to this one. I forgot that I had built that mini Mac uh, environment in Xcode so that I could run you know a classic um, Mac on here. So I had to go figure out how to reinstall the ROM and get that going again. And now I'm in the process of installing Photoshop. And yeah, so that was kind of a it was kind of a surprise. But um, um, yeah, I mean there there are some things that I find annoying about it, but but generally overall it's a great little great little tool. I mean I'm using it all day work you know at work because I've got you know all the work stuff on here. Um, so it's like a second you know second computer for me to work with. I use WebEx on it and all the Office tools on here as well. So it's pretty cool. Oh, and I did try uh, I did try a LiDAR app. I tried um, Magic Plan, which is, which is uh, one of the example apps that Apple talks about on their on the site. Um, it, 
this YouTube video, I'll find a link and put it in the show notes for anybody interested. But um, he goes through 15 things that you can do on your iPad today and like, you know, including the gestures and how to navigate around and stuff like that. Um, but one of the things he talks about is how to go go and find the, the AR apps that are in the app store. And basically you go in there, you go in the Apple store, you click on the app, the applica- the apps uh, menu or tab bar at the bottom, and then um, scroll down a ways and you'll get to a part where it says um, AR apps. And uh, then you click on that section and go dig, dig into that section. So there's all kinds of different um, categories here. So yeah, you go to categories, click see, see all. At the top, there's an AR um, choice. You go in there and you can see all the different apps. So Magic Plan is kind of like a, if you've ever done any floor plans or you want to do floor plans for your house or whatever, um, the the promise behind it is you use the LiDAR can, scanner to, to measure the room, sort of like the way you do with the measure tool. I found it was very close, but it wasn't, you know, wasn't super precise. But then, you know, it's not the main reason you buy the iPad. But it was very quick to go in with this magic plan thing to go in and actually, you know, take a tape measure and punch in the numbers and correct them to, you know, they were off by, you know, a few inches here and there, but kind of thing. So yeah, we were able to throw together a floor plan. Carol went off to Ikea today for a consultation with them. And so she was able to use the the PDF that I created at a magic plan for that. That's kind of cool. And I played with the Ikea Place app, which is, you don't get like all the Ikea furniture, but you get like a, you know, kitchen table and chairs and that kind of stuff. And you can sort of, you know, scan your room and then put the put the item down in the room to see how it looks and and it does use the the lidar scanner is kind of cool because if you walk between you know the normally you put a 3d object into an ar environment and somebody walks through it your dog walks through it or your partner walks through it they walk right through the model but now with the lidar scanner it can actually tell when somebody is between the model and you know the real like a real person is between a real real objects between the model and the background and it kind of does some sort of magic to make it to render behind so that's kind of cool but yeah it's it's neat from that point of view so play with the lidar stuff i haven't really dug too much into that but yeah so i'm I'm, I'm enjoying it it's an interesting little uh thing there's been a few annoying things about it but like for instance the first thing i went looking for was how to adjust the volume and somebody said there's a way to do it with with a keyboard with your with a finger command on the screen but i haven't quite figured that out all except for the fact that you can pull the control panel down from the corner right so which is kind of cool yeah, so that's my uh, two-minute review of my four days with an iPad. And it goes well with my, my you know, 2020 MacBook Pro, which has the same sort of, you know, square-edged, nice design on it as well. How did you feel after? Oh, no headphone jack, Mark. <laughs> God. Oh. No what? No headphone jack. No headphone jack, yeah. No, I, I did buy a, I bought a HyperDrive thing that has like a couple of ports on it. One of them is a headphone jack. What were you going to say, Jaime? I'm kind of interested after the, more than just the initial thoughts, but after the, would you say, four days, what were your thoughts on the... Uh, viewing angle and under what context are you using the viewing angle for the magic keyboard um i mean a lot of times it just sits on my desk beside my computer so i am using and i've been you know it just sits on this on the thing and, and it, it's nice it, it's really easy to sort of reach over and just adjust the viewing viewing angle as you need it depending on how you're sitting relative to the ipad um but like i said it's, it's actually i was i was concerned that when i'm sitting on the couch with my feet up and i've got it on my lap that the angle would be wrong right but it's it's actually it's it actually is adjustable. It doesn't. You can't tilt it back too far because we we talked about the fact that you know it's it'll it'll topple topple over if it does, right? Uh, it is he- like the the actual um, keyboard is heavy, but then the Logitech one was heavy too. Um, I, I enjoy the angle of this one way more than using the Logitech one, which only hinged from the back corner, right? So um, yeah, that one was uh, actually no, that one tilted forward, I think, but uh, it kind of created this little triangle thing. There is an, there's another mode too, which which uh, for drawing called easel mode.
mode where you you take the iPad off, you just sort of have to see it, and you and you put it down in front, just in front of the track trackpad, and lean it back, and then it's what that's what they call easel mode. Yeah, I'm taking a look at the picture, and I'm trying to imagine like the the some of the complaints we had seen early on was like, oh, it doesn't quite you know rotate enough, which I guess depending on on people's layouts might be entirely true, right? And that's what I was trying to wonder, like you know, are you having to to sort of crane your neck to see it, um, or does it feel pretty natural? Yeah, it's been pretty pretty pleasing, like most most times, like most of the time I've been using it, I haven't really had a an issue with it, right? But you can see what I mean, like it sort of sits in a sort of cr- in the crook of the angle there to sort of give you that that um, easel mode. I haven't really tried drawing with it in that mode yet, but I think I'd probably be more likely to hold it in my hand and do that, right, or sit it on my lap and draw it. All right. Well, this next thing here—it was interesting. I was—I was. I was um, what was I doing? I was trying to find. Well, I was trying to find some photos for for, for uh, one of my ne- nephews having a birthday on the weekend, and I was trying to find some older pictures that I had taken. And back in the day, like we we've had a digital camera in our family since you know uh, the early two thousands, and so I would have burned them to a CD ROM. And and I went to uh, I have the little you know the Air, MacBook Air uh, Super Drive that you plug into the USB port. Um, so I've never really worried about not having a CD drive. I mean, who uses CD drives anymore, I guess. But um, turns out that Catalina has dropped support for HFS and HFS Plus volumes, so you cannot read a CD or CDR that you've written back in the day, like in, you know, like five, six years ago. So I had to, you know, fortunately on my MacBook Air, I remember, but when I was testing, I created a separate APFS volume and left a copy of Mojave on that computer. So I booted into Mojave so I could read these files, but yeah, it was really interesting that uh, that I discovered this the hard way that you can't read your old CD-ROMs if you have them backed up back in the day. So, and that would, I guess that would apply to any, like, if you plugged in a, a hard drive as well, right? So, it's just a little, little PSA for you, those people scratching your heads if you're trying to figure out why you can't. You get this really weird cryptic error, but it turns out that's what it is. It just can't doesn't understand the format. All right. And um, yeah, I guess that's it. We're at the picks section. And how many you got to pick for us? Yeah, I, I don't li- know if this is literally new because I don't see a publication date, but it was it was new to me, this series of tutorials on developer.apple.com called Bring an iPad App to the Mac with Mac Catalyst. It's a three hour, 25 minutes, and it's it's I've not gone through it, but I sort of just browsed through and it looks pretty, pretty well done. They've got it broken up into chapters about, you know, sort of the essentials, uh, dealing with sidebar navigation, toolbar actions, and, and how you can refine your interface. we got sample code as uh, resources and, uh, you know, little sections. Like, as you click into each one, they show you sort of what you're doing step by step. But then it was also pretty nice. Oh, this is the wrong one. Probably sidebar navigation. Um, they also give you the little code snippets, too, that you could just grab or and it'll show you. Oh, OK, well, this is this is where specifically you're making the change instead of, hey, here's this entire, you know, 500 line thing. Let me use my my words to describe roughly where you are. And in this case, they sort of progressively disclose the little sections and what's changing. So you can follow along pretty, pretty nice. Yeah, this is pretty new to me, too. I didn't know about this as well. But as you know, I'm working on device tracker, bringing it through Catalyst to, to the Mac, because there's a few features that make more sense on the Mac that people want uh, the app. And um, and I'm also going to think about, you know, moving it over to iCloud for sharing as well. But um, And so for me, the big thing I've been working on lately was was uh, converting from photos, from asset library to photo library. Um, but yeah, this is cool. I'll have to look at this, because a couple of things came up for me when I was trying to move over device tracker. And that's, you know, I have 
a bunch of actions that are built into the app, like importing and exporting. And so my first question was, once I get it over to the Mac, is, okay, now I have to figure out how to get an import and export um, menu choice, right? So how, does this, do you know if this covers those kind of interface changes? I haven't gone deep enough through it, so I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, they do have, you know, sidebar and toolbar action stuff that like uh, an iPad app wouldn't sort of naturally have. And then the interface refinements, um, they talk about menu elements and supporting the touch bar. But I, I don't know the answer to specifically what you're asking. Because some of the, I mean, some of these are pretty fine grained, like, oh, this is five minutes, this is 10 minutes. But then some like adding a toolbar is like a 40 minute chunk out of that three hour and 25 minutes, right? So it's a little hard to tell. Uh, I think you're, you're sort of meant to sit down and, and sort of go through it like as if you were doing episodes of a television series. Right, right. Yeah, no, I'll definitely have to take a look at this because I'm, I'm I'm in the midst of sort of, I'm refactoring a bunch of things in Device Tracker itself, like to try and bring it up to more sort of, I modernize it every year, right? Um, one thing that Mark and I were talking about a couple of days ago was was the photos access. Um, so I've been, I went through a couple of uh, tries at getting the, the you know, the figuring out how the pH acid works and all that kind of stuff and how to, you know, capture something from the, from the, because there's a UI, was it UI picker view controller is the old way of, of selecting an image. Um, Apple's added this new um, photos UI um, framework as well as photos itself. I think it, they added it last year and it's kind of cool because instead of just giving you uh, like the library that you, it gives you access to your library, your, your photo library, but also gives you access to the albums and stuff like that. But, but there's also a search thing that they've added to this new um, photos UI thing. So it's not quite, you know, Mark and I were talking, wondering whether or not there was a UI built into photos. There isn't, I don't think, but, but this does give you access to some UI elements. Yeah. Yeah. So so I'll still have to use some sort of picker and then I got to figure out how to get the camera to work and then save it into the, into the album and that kind of stuff. Right. So, so that, that's, that's part of the reason why I'm moving to photos is because I, when I want to bring it over to the Mac, it's going to make more sense to be able to drag and drop images into the app as opposed to, you know, like you do on, well, I suppose I could do drag and drop on the iPad as well. Right. But yeah, sort of some of those metaphors make more sense. And then another one little issue that I have is one of the options is to be able to mail, um, to mail, a, a, a an asset from this device tracker, um, to a colleague or something like that. Right. And, um, the, uh, the mail, um, framework doesn't work properly on Mac. It crashes actually when I try and send a mail. So I guess the handling of that handoff for that is a little different too. Yeah. I have to check this out. Cool. That's why I like this podcast. I learned things. <laughs> <laughs> That's why we do it. Yeah. Yeah, so this is a quick one here from uh, from Swift Lee or um, Anto- Antoine uh, Vanderlee. Uh, he has a site uh, where he puts up little tutorials. This is an interesting one. This is, um, I don't know if you guys have noticed or not, but uh, the launch screen has changed again in uh, Xcode 12. And uh, so we had, you know, initially we had the you know, launch screens were static uh, images or stat- yeah, just a static image. And, um, you know, in, even in the case of Device Tracker, like the Apple's direction is to make it look like as close as you can to the screen that's going to be the first screen on the in your in your app so i dutifully made you know screenshots of the device tracker and grade them out and put my logo over top I think um, you're, you're so the that when the person who ever actually did that <laughs> no i know i probably am i probably yeah. am like 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 now i just have a blue screen with you know with my logo on it and copyright message but the original kind of reason for and, that was because it took a long time for the for apps to load in to the load. Early days. so yeah. they didn't yeah. even want you to have your logo on top it was just a 
supposed to look like your screen. So it would fake out the user into thinking that the app was actually launched. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, yeah. Reset. And you could, you could, you, yeah, and there was a timer. You could, you could set a timer in the back. And I know some people would load resources in the back behind those original, original screens, right? But uh, around iOS 8, they, with Xcode 6, they came out with a way of, um, of using a storyboard as, as a, to, I guess, and to make it sort of scalable and you can apply, you know, auto layout to it and size classes and things like that to make it much more dynamic for different size screens. But it was still limited because it was a single view. You couldn't do any, there was no, no view controller to control, to control any code on it. So it was kind of, kind of like, um, limp. And again, that's kind of the, 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 um, because I keep device tracker updated, that's the kind of story or launch screen I have in there now. But, um, but now there's a new way of doing it. And, um, this is kind of cool. Uh, and he talks about it here in this little article on how to implement the new launch screens. Um, you can do it a couple of different ways. You can do it through a P list or you can have, you can list an item here called, um, a P list item called launch screen. And then you can have things under it. You can have a background color. You can load a, a logo. Um, you can ta- say whether or not it respects safe area or not, whether if, if you want to fill the screen or, or have, in this case here, his example, he fakes out the, uh, the, the navigation bars to sort of do that sort of air quotes, um, thing where, uh, you make it look like the, the landing screen when, when it first actually loads up. So that's one way of doing it. Another one is with a URL scheme, which didn't quite get my head wrapped around this one, but, um, there's a launch screen colon slash slash where you can, you can have a load up a launch screen that way as well. Um, and there's a third way, I guess the third way is using a storyboard file, like storyboard file, like you norm like you do today kind of thing. Right. It was kind of an interesting article on, on how to do this. Um, but there was another little tidbit in here too, that he talks about, and this is an app that he's written, um, called rocket sim. And, uh, just as a sort of add on to this particular pick, um, he originally did it so he could create screen or recordings of his simulator, but you can also, he also found, he's also added the ability to test deep links in it. So you can you know, enter a deep link in it and have it, have your app behave as if, as if you came from somewhere else. Uh, universal link, I think is the proper terminology, right? Um, cause they're difficult to test. So he, yeah, he's got a way of, of adding in a, um, in this app, uh, to add a, a universal link and then have your app respond to it when it hits your app delegate and does all that kind of stuff. Right. So there's kind of, kind of cool, a couple of things right out of this, um, this article here. So rock it's him from swiftly or also uh, the new types of launch screens when was it that storyboards became a thing for a launch screen was that ios 8 really ios 8 yeah xcode so 6, yeah. when we went to the different aspect ratio for the iphone 5 we just had more than one image Yes. I knew it had to do yeah, something, dude. Yeah. Okay. Remember, you had to have default underscore, what was it, 548? iPad and iPad HD. Yeah, yeah, but okay. there was the yeah. one for the, for the iPhone 5 had actually had the number. It was like 548 or, or something yeah. like that. Right. And then probably around the time of the, the 6 Plus and the 6 is when they said, all right, you don't want to have like 20 different screens that represent the same launch. So just go ahead and have a storyboard. And it's up to you to use auto layout and some sensible designs and make this, this look appropriate in all devices yeah yeah no when i had when i was doing my uh device tracker i had i had had ipad landscape ipad portrait i had uh iphone like the original size the 380 or two 320 by 480 right i had to had to have 
five different um, splash screens or launch screens for for those. And then now now I have a storyboard where I just have a logo centered. So, yeah. Oh yeah, here's my launch images. I had that. So there was the Retina 5.5, the Retina 4.7, the Retina 5.5 landscape. The because I supported the iPhone 6, right? Um, with the uh, 6 Plus, I should say, with the rotation. Yeah. So there was there was an intermediate time at, when we didn't have to have the default .pngs anymore, and we could use a uh, a uh, asset catalog. Yeah. And you, so you could name whatever want you wanted and just draw you know drag and drop them into this into the slots. But yeah, and in, in when the when the five first came out, we had to do all these default dash five sixty eight h png files. Kind of crazy stuff. Um, and my last pick here is uh, I got to give a shout out to one of our our um, Slack buddies who also pointed this one out to me today. I saw this on uh, Marin. Let me know about this one. But uh, and of course, you know it's a retro Mac experience, so I'm all over that. Um, it's basically a, a um, project that's on GitHub called Macintosh JS, and he's basically taken a Quadro, which is a 68040 processor experience of Mac. It looks like Mac OS 7 to me, maybe 6 or maybe 8. Um, but yeah, he's basically built um, the entire OS, like the 90s style OS, Mac OS, into a little floating window. You can load it up as a standalone Mac app. Um, you can load it on Windows. You can load it in 32-bit and 64-bit because, you know, they're still in transition over there. Uh, it even runs on Linux. Yeah, there's a Debian version and RPM. I'm not sure what that is. Uh, version of it. Um, I guess one of their package manager tools, right? And uh, yeah, you can run Mac OS uh, on it. And apparently, I haven't really tried this yet, but apparently you can load up apps and games and things like, things like that into it too. So uh, this guy spent a uh, whole time doing an emulator. Now, I, I did run it today earlier when I when I got this, and um, uh, it's actually faster than the original hardware was. So even though it's written in JavaScript, it's still faster than, than the it's It's in a, what's it called? What's it called? An icon app or what's it made in? Electron. Electron. Yeah. So it's pretty cool. Guy spent a lot of time on this. I don't know why, but there you go. The shout out goes to Bevan, I think, right? So we have so much excess processing power that despite being, you know, not exactly performance optimized as, as the means by which this is being rendered and, and emulated here, it's actually way faster than the real thing ever was. That's interesting. Yeah. So it's kind of cool. Loving it. Getting your Adobe Photoshop Creative Cloud Edition file PSDs and shoving them in here and say, "Here, try this. <laughs> See what the future is like." Yeah, this, this predates. This is probably like, yeah, he's got the Photoshop three point three oh five in the in the screenshot here, right? So I think that came out in CD ROM. So I'll have to try that one. Yeah, pretty cool. Lots of fun. All right, I guess that's it for another week. So hey, hi, me if people want to get in touch with you, how would they find you? I'm on Twitter is at Dev of the Hair and Mark. If people want to get in touch with you, or at Snapsoft.com. Anyway, my name is Timitra T I M M I T R A on the Twitter machines where you'll find me until next week we'll say bye-bye bye this has been another episode of the more than just code podcast if you want to find out more about the show you can visit the more than just code website at mtjc.fm there you can find a summary and show notes of each episode we list links to the apps code and news that we mentioned on the show if you like the podcast tell your friends please leave a comment on the website and if you can please write a review on iTunes and please recommend us in your favorite podcatcher. 
All of these things help others find out about the show. We really appreciate your help with spreading the word. We're also on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We'd love to hear from you. So use the hashtag AskMTJC. Once again, the podcast Twitter account is at MTJC underscore podcast. Please consider supporting the show by pledging any amount on patreon.com slash MTJC. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time. Stop recording? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I mean, I think we can go. Oh, wait, before we do that, so so I watched a little bit of hockey yesterday, which was interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think I watched part, I, I was like, it was coding, so I had hockey on in the background, so it was very strange to watch uh, them play. But you know what, it's funny, because I was saying to Carol earlier, I played hockey for like, you know, 30 years, and I never had an audience in the in the stands, right? So it was not unusual. And I actually watched some baseball, too, today, surprisingly. So it's kind of weird that uh, of all the people who watch sports, it would be me, right? Yeah. And, there's, and I gotta say, though, you know about the whole Seattle getting a, a new hockey team? Mm-hmm. The only problem with Seattle getting a professional hockey team is that Toronto will want one too. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that's an old joke. Um